0: Before I call on Pastor J.D., I would like to open our scriptures uh, to John chapter 10, verse 10 to 18, before we hear God, the preaching of God's word. Um, again, uh, please prepare your Bibles if you have it with you at home. Would you please turn to John chapter 10, verse 10 to 18, as we read our passage for today. Again, that's John chapter 10, verse 10 through 18. For those of you who are at home, please follow along in the reading of God's word. Okay, John chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 10 to 18. Verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. there will so there will be one flock, one shepherd, for this reason the father's love the father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. This is the reading of God's word.
1: Well, good morning, Echo Church. It's good to be here this morning. It's tough to stare into a camera. I think I say that every week that I preach. Uh, we miss you, and we're looking forward to the, the day where we're all going to be together again. And uh, we, until that time, we continue to ask God's mercy and God's grace upon us. I recognize that for you right now, you may be listening to this with kids running around in front of you and, and lots of distractions to be had. And and we're gonna pray right now. We're gonna ask that God would, uh, by his mercy, cut through all of those distractions and and help us, all of us to get into his word and feel the life that comes only from Jesus Christ. So let's pray together to that end. Lord Jesus, we ask now that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would give us grace when the 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 normal things of life are cutting in on us as we're at home and scattered all over the place. Um, give us grace for the the noises that are around us. Give us grace that it's not a normal environment where we're here gathered together as a church. Give us grace that it's difficult to stand and repeat things and sing things when it just feels like it's us alone in our living rooms. Give us grace for our children that don't understand the, the time of sitting under God's word. If they're little, give us grace, God, because we need it. Because we are in a, a period of time, we're in a moment where we need special grace from you. We need your mercy, God, because we've never felt more in our lives or in our world, uh, our, our own feebleness. We've never felt more our own frailty as human beings. And God, I pray that that would have a good effect on our souls. I pray that rather than, than, than it's causing us turmoil and anguish and, and, and a lack of hope, I pray God that we would find our hope much more than we have before or in times of prosperity because we are now seeing the truth about who we are. And may we then look to you and see the truth about who you are, because you are the one who gives to us in abundance. You are the one that says to us, put your trust in me, not in yourselves. And so God, I pray we would do that this morning. And God, we just confess that we need you. We confess our sinfulness and we confess uh, the fact that we are in a broken world. So God, come and help us as we open up your word, as we look at the fact that you give life. And may we know it and love it this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John chapter 10. Verses 10, I'm only going to get through verses 16 today, John 10, verses 10 through 16. Last week, uh, Patrick preached on the first nine verses of John chapter 10, and he spent time talking about Jesus being the good shepherd, which we're going to hit on again today, and then Jesus being the door. So he hit on both of those ideas, and he gave us some context that I want to remind us of in just a second, but we're gonna be continuing with those themes. And if you're just joining us and maybe it's, it's your first or second time that you've joined us here at Echo Church, what we're doing is we're doing a series called I Am. And it's Jesus's I Am statements in the book of John. So we're not going uh, verse by verse through the book of John. We're not gonna go from beginning to end. Instead, we're gonna look at these pinnacle moments in the book of John where Jesus makes a declaration about himself and who he is. And we're oftentimes seeing him make that declaration in the face of the religious leaders of the day. And there's oftentimes a counter back and forth between Jesus and those religious leaders. And this is where a large amount of the teaching in the gospel of John comes from. When Jesus is teaching us, he's oftentimes in the face of conflict. He's, giving, he's, in, he's in the midst of adversity where others are challenging him. And so he'll make statements about who he is. And then he'll also counter those with teaching. He'll, he'll, he'll back those up with teaching. So we continue our series as we're looking now at Jesus being the good shepherd. And we're going to pick that up now in John 10.10. 10. But before we get there, let's get our main point. Here's the main point today. If you're taking notes, here's the main thing I wanna say and I want you to hear. False leaders will ultimately destroy those who follow them. But Jesus gives his life away for the lowest of his people. Okay, let's say that one more time. False leaders will ultimately destroy those who follow them. But Jesus gives his life away for the lowest of his people. Let's look at John 10.10 and let's see how that plays out now in our text. John 10.10, it starts like this. The thief, Jesus says, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So our text starts this morning with a comparison. We see a comparison between the thief and Jesus And we immediately notice a couple of things in there. We notice that the thief comes to take, right? You can see that there, the steal, kill and destroy. The thief comes to take for himself and Jesus comes to give and he comes to give life and he comes to give life abundantly. So there's this piling on of words here to compare, or should I say, contrast the thief on one side and Jesus on the other. And that's really what we're going to see in this text. We're going to see a comparison between those who are what I call false leaders and Jesus. And we're just going to get, we're going to highlight who Jesus is and why, and how he is so different than the false leaders, both in his day, 2,000 years ago, and our leaders today. So here's the first point, the first sub-point, if you're taking notes. False leaders only take for themselves and end up hurting the people they lead. So we're going to start now with the false leaders. We're going to start with who they are, and we're going to talk about how they are, they essentially want to take rather than to give. So Jesus talks about the thieves here. Okay, here in this text, he's talking about the thief. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Okay, but later on, he's also gonna talk about a second group and we'll get to that second group in a second, but let's start with the thieves. Who are these thieves? And, and, And how does this contribute now to the text that we're seeing and teach us more about who Jesus is? So we see first that the thieves come to steal, kill and destroy. Now, if you've heard this verse before, you probably have heard it quoted in reference to Satan, right so you'll you'll oftentimes hear people talk, well, you know Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy right this is oftentimes how we reference this verse as if it's Satan is the one who's doing that now, I think that Satan is behind he is in some ways behind the evil of this world he is in some ways behind. Everything that goes on that is bad. Now, I'm not saying that Satan is the immediate cause of every evil in this world, but in some sense, we could say he is the he is the source of evil, could we not? He was the original evil, and he is the one who who perhaps through his demons or through his 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 uh, the way he sort of manifests himself on this earth. When we see evil happening, there's a we can say that there Satan is behind that. However, However, in this text, I don't think we're talking about Satan here. Not, not specifically. I don't think Satan is the thief. Okay, and, and the reason I say that is if go back to John 10.1. Look at the very beginning where Patrick led us through last week. And look at the first verse that Jesus says here. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber, okay? So Jesus is setting up a metaphor and Patrick led us through this metaphor uh, beautifully uh, last week. He talked about the sheep pen and there's a lot of sheep in that pen and there is a good shepherd, right? Uh, the, the shepherd that comes in and he speaks to the sheep and he, the sheep know his voice and the sheep will come out and only those sheep will come out. But he says, there's another man And that man is the one who's going to jump in through the side. He's not going to come in the normal way. And so Jesus is setting up a metaphor here. And I think, as Patrick shared with us last week, I think the metaphor is coming off of John 9. So what what was happening in John 9? What was going on there? Well, we we just saw, if you just look back a few verses from John 10, we just saw uh, the Pharisees, kick out a man from the synagogue. And who was this man? What was his crime? What did he do? Well, he claimed, truth, truthfully claimed that Jesus had healed him. That was his crime. Jesus, this guy, Jesus healed me from blindness. And they said, you're lying. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm not lying. And they said, get out of the synagogue. And immediately following that story, Jesus talks about the thieves and the robbers who come in in the side of the sheep gate, okay? So who's he talking about here? He's talking about the religious leaders. He's talking about the leaders, the Pharisees, the ones who are taking for themselves and are kicking out the good people, hurting the good people who would be the sheep in that situation. So... I think we're talking about human leaders. Now, again, I don't want to get far from Satan or his works because you remember what, when we covered this a few weeks ago, do you remember what Jesus says about the Pharisees in John chapter 8? Do you remember that pinnacle moment where there's an argument back and forth and the Pharisees are insulting Jesus and Jesus has got this, he kind of, builds this argument to a crescendo where he finally hits in John chapter eight, verse 44. And what does he say? You are of your father, the devil. Pharisees, why? Your will is to do your father's desires. So when you act like the devil, you are of your, you are sons of the devil, which is what Jesus is essentially saying. So is the devil at work here when, when, when a false leader leads a sheep astray is the devil at work? Certainly in a sense, but it's the human beings that are actually doing the work in that situation. So the devil's at work when bad people are at work, right? But remember the context of the passage, these are human leaders. These are the Jewish people who are the thieves. Now, why are they thieves? What does Jesus say about them? Here in John 10, 10, he tells us that they come to steal and kill and destroy. So what does a thief do? A thief pretends to lead the sheep. And again, Patrick, I'm hitting on some themes here that Patrick talked about last week. A a thief pretends to lead the sheep, right? Until he gets them away from the shepherd. Until he gets them to a place where, where he has them alone, right? Then he will use the sheep. He may sell them for money. He may eat them. I mean, that's a gross metaphor when you think about the fact of what it's actually talking about, but the thief would certainly use the sheep for his own material gain, right? Whether that's the food or the money he would take for himself. Now, in leadership, there is always a temptation to use your position for your own gain. And this has been true ever since there have ever been leaders, ever since human beings have walked on this earth, there has been a temptation to use your leadership for your own comfort, for your own gain. Now, there's something interesting that happens in the Bible because there, in the story of God's people, there comes a point where uh, God's people are about to enter into the promised land. And God says to them, essentially, you're going to want a king at some point to reign over you. And he doesn't say that that's wrong. Okay, not entirely. But he says, when you choose a king, this needs to be a king that I choose. And this needs to be a king that lives based upon my character. In fact, let me give you a list of things that your your king, your leader should do. And that takes place in Deuteronomy chapter 17. So if you want to flip there quickly, you can. You can see the whole context. I'm going to point to a couple of verses in Deuteronomy 17 right now, though. Here's what God says in Deuteronomy 17, verse 15. God tells them that they may in the future set a king over them. But here's what he says. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. Okay, so this is not just the people going out and finding whatever, you know, whatever they think is the best. God says, I'm going to choose that king. Okay, but there are now strict rules that the king must follow in order to lead the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 17, 16, the next verse, says only, okay, so except, here's here's the rule, he must not acquire many horses for himself in verse 17 and she, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So I hope you see in that text, the connection between amassing horses or wives in this particular case Or riches, right? So just taking for oneself, for one's own pleasure or gain. Do you see the connection between that and turning away? Look at the verse again in verse 17. Lest his heart turn away. So as a leader begins to to gather things to himself, things for his own comfort, things for his own wealth, there is this immediate temptation that his heart will just simply turn away from the Lord. And maybe for the sake of the people, it would turn away from serving the people. And I think those two are the same thing. Turning away from the Lord and turning away from serving the people is one in 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 the same. So Deuteronomy 17 goes on to talk about how he needs to know the word of God and meditate on it so that he will not turn away. What does it say in 1720? He says, that he, he needs to know the word. Okay, so I'm giving you just the context of the verse. He needs to know the word, verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. And there it is. That's leadership. Leadership always contains the temptation to lift up one's heart above the people that he is leading. The scripture is clear. Leadership brings temptation. And the higher the level of leadership, the stronger the temptation. You've heard the, the, the phrase, it's been probably quoted a lot, but power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So you give a human being, a sinful human being, absolute power and you will see that human being corrupted and i believe that statement is true and i think not that that's a bible verse but i believe that statement is true in the sense of the bible teaches us what's inside of our hearts and if we're simply allowed to have absolute power and 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 have power over other people absolutely i believe that ultimately will just that temptation is is too much for any one human being to bear other than Jesus Christ. When you give in to that temptation, you are stealing from people. And ultimately, I believe you will kill people. Now, if you're a spiritual leader, you will kill people spiritually. If you're a, a, a leader physically over people, I believe it ultimately leads to death physically, like actual death, okay? And, and history has examples of this, right? We, we, could, we could talk about Adolf Hitler, right? Absolute power, Adolf Hitler. 12 million people executed. And I'm not talking about those who died in World War II. I'm talking about the, where Hitler's hand is behind the murder of 12 million Jews plus others, Joseph Stalin, at his hand are 60 million dead, whether through starvation in Ukraine or direct execution or being sent to the gulags to work until they die. 60 million for Joseph Stalin. Mao Zedong has at his hands 100 million deaths. These are absolute leaders over their regimes, over their countries. Paul Pot, Paul Pot, lesser known by some, Cambodia, uh, totalitarian dictator in Cambodia, two million deaths. Now you may think, okay, well that's that's not that as much as the others that I just, I just listed off Mao with a hundred million and Joseph Stalin with 60 million. Well, 2 million deaths is 25% of the population of the country at that time. Pol Pot killed 25% of his own country. So when these leaders have absolute authority to dictate over their realm, people die according to history. That's just a pattern we see over and over and over again. Absolute authority leads to death in the millions. So those are the thieves. Those are those who use their authority for their own gain and ultimately steal from, rob from, and ultimately Kill and destroy the people that are under their care. And Jesus says, I'm different than that. But later on in the text, and I want you to look down now just a couple of verses in John 10. Look at verse 12 and 13. He talks about another kind of false leader. Here's what he says. He who is a hired hand, that's different than a thief now. It's a little different than a thief. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So the hired hand may not be specifically trying to hurt the sheep right? He may not be trying to steal from the sheep. He just doesn't care about the sheep. He just, he's about himself and doesn't care about the people that are under his care. He's unwilling to sacrifice anything for the sheep. Now he'll take a paycheck, right? To, to do his job, as long as his job is fairly easy and basic, but as soon as you ask him to sacrifice on behalf of the people that he is serving, whoa, that's too much. I'm, I'm out now. And I believe that this is the kind of leader that is most prevalent in the world. Yes, there are the Stalins and the Maos out there. Yes. If we look at human history, we see people that have murdered and executed, right? And they've done terrible things to the people that they have led. However, those are the minority If you compare them to the hired hand kind of leader, because the hired hand kind of leader is simply they they don't want to cause trouble. They don't want to stir up anything. They don't actively want to hurt anybody. They just want the luxury that comes with their job. And as long as they get to keep their job, they're happy. And, and, I, and, I'm not, and I, I will not make a partisan statement here when I say that this is many of our politicians, both sides of the political spectrum, right? This is, this is the life of many of our politicians. It's like, just, just as long as I get to keep my job, I don't care what else happens to anybody else. There's an old English poem that I kind of get a kick out of, it comes from the 17th century or the 18th century. And the poem is called The Vicar of Bray. Now, something you need to know is a vicar is a church leader. Okay, A, a vicar was a, was a way of, of talking about a church leader. And Bray is a specific town or region of England. Okay, So this was a church leader who was in charge of a particular area called Bray uh, in, in England. And the poem uh, is is often taught to school children because it goes through the different periods of English, of, of the, of English history. And the idea here is that the church, uh, the, uh, no matter what government came into power, the vicar of, of Bray would change his beliefs in order to line up with that particular government. Okay, so the vicar of Bray, in fact, here's a line. It, it, here's a line from the, the vicar of Bray. This is the vicar of Bray speaking in the poem. He says, And this is law, I will maintain until my dying day, sir, that whosoever king may reign, I will be the vicar of Bray, sir. Okay, now, why is that a problem? Why is it a problem that no matter which regime comes in, and remember, England sometimes had Catholic uh, people who were Catholics who were uh, on the throne, and sometimes had people who were more Anglican Protestants who were on the throne. It sometimes had different people from different political points of view, and the idea was that the Vicar of Bray had absolutely no foundational beliefs. He would simply maneuver his beliefs to whoever was in leadership at that time. And his main goal was simply to remain the vicar of Bray. Know any leaders like this? Do you know anybody in your life? And, and and let's be honest, it's a temptation for every single person to say, well, if I give just a little bit on my core foundational beliefs, then I get to keep my job, right? And we understand that temptation. But this is the hired hand. This is the person that says, "I don't care about actual foundational morality or foundational principles in my life. All I care about is staying in my position. I just want to hold on to my position." And that was the vicar of Bray. So, so how do we? What do we? What do we do to apply this? how do we actually take this and make this meaningful for our lives today? Well, let me just try to take it in one direction real quick and say, church, be careful of false leaders. Both the thieves that want to actively hurt, they want to rob from you, steal from you, kill your spiritual life, kill you at some point, could be physically. There are those And then there are the hired hands that are simply willing to give whatever they need to give to stay in the role and then the position that they are in. I'm not necessarily talking about false teachers, by the way. Did you notice I've been using the word false leaders? Why? Because false leaders don't necessarily have to teach bad doctrine. Do you get that idea? They don't have, they could still be teaching, generally teaching the Bible. And teaching it in a way that, that that's, we would say, yeah, that's orthodox, that's not heresy, that's not wrong, and yet they are still this kind of leader. So false teachers is one thing. If they're teaching something false, so, so those of us who know our Bibles are probably going to be able to pick that out, figure that out. But false leaders might come in and teach the Bible, but they don't care about the sheep. They aren't willing to sacrifice for the sheep. Now, one of my hopes for Echo Church, one of the things that I, when we, when we planted this church, one of the things that I was actively praying and still actively praying to God for is that we would be a church that's around a hundred years from now. In other words, that what we're doing right here when we do church and when we gather, especially when we're all able to gather, what we're doing is bigger than any one of us and any one of our lives. And so it would be around long after all of us are gone. That is, a, that is something I'm asking the Lord that he would do in his grace. And in order to do that, do you know what it takes to be a church that's around a hundred years later? And there are, there are churches that you can now look to that have been around for longer than that. Do you know what it takes? It takes choosing good leaders. And, and, I, and I'm not, of course, we, we, have a, we have those of us who are members, we have a congregational meeting coming up where we're, we're potentially choosing two elder candidates to be elders. I'm not primarily talking about even in this particular moment. I'm talking about throughout the life of our church that we choose the kind of leaders that are not like the thief or the hired hand the kind of leaders that just don't really care about the sheep. But I'm actually pleading with you, even beyond me and my own authority and whatever power I have in the church, that as we bring on other elders throughout the next decades of our church life together, we would choose the kind of elders that are Christ-like in their leadership. And they're not like these men. That's how we're going to have longevity as a church. That's how we're going to be a church that, that will be around a hundred years from now after we're all long gone and our children and our children's children could enjoy gathering together in the fellowship of, of Echo Church. That's, that's, my, that's my deep desire. Now, one of the directives we get from scripture when it comes to choosing leaders is that we are supposed to look at a potential elder's family life before choosing him as an elder. Now, why is that so, why, why is that so perfect and brilliant for scripture to call us, if we're going to call on somebody to lead the church, that we look first at their family life? Because you can tell whether a potential elder is a sacrificial leader by how he leads his family. And that's what we're looking for. Those who are willing to sacrifice and be leaders. Okay. So those are the false leaders. And you remember that this whole sermon is about comparing them to Jesus. Let's now look at Jesus. Let's look at the second half of verse 10. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I came, you know, in in contrast to the false leaders, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Every one of those leaders I mentioned used their leadership for their own gain, but Jesus uses his leadership to give. That's the, that's the verb that we see there in that second half of the sentence. He gives, that I, have, that I came that they may have life, which means he gave to them life. And not just life, eternal life. Abundant life is the way the English puts it, but it is referencing, make no mistake, it's referencing eternal life. The highest and greatest gift that you could receive as a human being is to have eternal life. To stand before God in the judgment and for him to say, come into my kingdom. You are a part of my kingdom. You are my son. You are my daughter. This kingdom is forever. It doesn't end. Come into my kingdom. That is the great. It doesn't matter what your life looks like right now. It doesn't matter how bad or how difficult or how painful your life is right now. If you have eternal life, your pain and heartbreak, as bad as it is, is a drop in the bucket compared to the glories that are yours to come. Do you know that, Christian? That is why when Jesus says, I have come to give you life, And when he's talking about eternal life, he is talking about the greatest possible gift that we could have. I hope you feel that in this period of time that we're living in right now. I hope you feel it more poignantly than you ever have before. The glories of what is coming. Jesus, here's point number two. If you're taking notes, Jesus sacrificially gave himself so that his people would have life. Jesus sacrificially gave himself so that his people would have life. The text goes on to tell us how he did that. John chapter 10, verse 11, look at there. He says, I am the good shepherd. How does life come, Jesus? How are you gonna give us life? How are you actually, what are you giving to us? And how are you gonna do it? Look at the next sentence. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. How are you going to give us life, Jesus? I'm going to lay my life down. Jesus was the opposite of the thief, wasn't he? The thief kills you so that he can have more for himself. Jesus lays his own life down so that you can have eternal life. That's the, op- that's the contrast that we're seeing there. And the word for means on your behalf. So when he says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, it means that he's going to sacrifice for them. What is his is going to be given to them. That's the idea behind the word for. But who is it that Jesus does this for? Who, who, who is it that actually gets to receive this eternal life? Look down at John ten fourteen. He repeats, he says, I am the good shepherd. He says it again. I know my own, listen to that, and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Who gets to receive this gift? Who is it that Jesus lays down his life for? Jesus gives his life away for his sheep, his own. His sheep are the ones That he knows. Now question. How do you know if he knows you? How do you know that he knows you? Well, the text tells us, doesn't it? He knows you if you know him. Okay. I'm not trying to create a riddle here. If you know Jesus, and I mean, no in the way the Bible uses the word. No, like To know someone intimately, to know them, to love them. Knowing isn't just knowing about them, it's loving them, isn't it? This happens over and over again in scripture. If you know him, he knows you. In fact, get this, he knew you before you knew him. He loved you before you loved him. The Bible says, while you were yet a sinner, Jesus died for you. He knew you and loved you and cared for you. And then when you find that you know him, you get to go back and go Jesus you knew me first. You knew me before I ever knew you. Here's 1 John 4:19. Why do we love? 1 John 4:19, we love because he first loved us. God acted first. This wasn't a mutual decision. This was him reaching out to you reaching down to you and saying, I love you. And it's because he reached down and grabbed you that you are now able to say, I love you. And when you know him, something astounding happens. Something amazing happens. Jesus tells us that when you know him and he knows you, it is like, are you seeing the verse there? Like Jesus knowing the father and the father knowing Jesus. Okay. Do you see it there? In John chapter 10, verse 15, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So, so this knowing me and me knowing you is just like me knowing my father and my father knowing me. Now you might hear that and you might say, why is that such a big deal? It just sounds like he's using an analogy, right? It just sounds like the analogy of father to son is like Jesus and us. Okay, that's great. That's I'm happy about that. Why is that such a big deal? It's a big deal because Jesus is going to use this again in John 17, and he's going to explain more of what he means. And I want you to, if you have your Bibles, turn there a couple pages to John 17, verse 20. Jesus clarifies what he means by your relationship with Jesus is like Jesus' relationship with the Father. He's going to clarify. Here's what he says. John 17, verses 20 and 23. I do not ask for these only. Okay, He's, Jesus is praying to his Father at this particular moment. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you father are in me and I in you notice the father, Jesus language here that they, okay, that's, that's those who know him. That's those who he knows. Those are people who are his people that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me. I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Now there's a lot there, but I hope you keyed in on the one language between Jesus and the father and Jesus's people. What's happening there. There's a oneness with all of them. Do you see it? What Jesus is offering us is not just an analogy that, Hey, your relationship with me with me is going to be like my relationship with God. It's not just an analogy. It is an invitation to come into the relationship that he has with his father. That they may be one just as you father are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Listen to this Christian. Listen through Jesus, you enter into the Trinity itself. I'm going to say it again and I'm going to explain it because it sounds like heresy. Listen through Jesus, you enter in to the Trinity itself. Now that requires some explanation. You don't become God when you become a Christian. How is it that I am a part of the Trinity? Isn't the Trinity father, son and Holy spirit. Isn't that God that's always been in existence and always been loving and in relationship with one another? Yes, and you enter into that. How do you do that? You enter into it through Christ, by being in Christ. And what Jesus becomes yours as you enter into him and are united to him by faith. Is there mystery here? You bet there's mystery here. Can I explain everything? No way. But what I can tell you is that John 17 is telling us the same thing that John 10 is saying. And Jesus is saying that I have a relationship with the father that you are brought into when you become a Christian. When you enter into me, you are brought into that intra, big word here, ready? Intra Trinitarian love that has always existed. And you bet that that is a, the, the profoundness of that love, there, there are not human words to describe or to explain that love that has always been in existence between the father and the son. That's eternal life. Eternal life is participating in the intra-Trinitarian love of father to son, son to father, father to Holy Spirit, and you, you get the idea. Now, Jesus says, I'm going to take a few more minutes here. Jesus says in John 17, 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's talking about other people. There are other people now that he's referencing. And I believe that these are people that are outside of Israel These are not people that are part of the people that are immediately with Jesus, not his disciples. They're they're not even people who live in the same region that Jesus is living in, in that particular moment. They are outsiders. And he says, I'm not praying for just these right here. I'm praying for all of them. Everyone who is outside, I'm asking them because they're going to come in as well. Now look back to John 10 and I want you to notice something in John 10 verse 16. John 10, 16, he says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And we're being told again that the Gentiles now, those who are outside of Israel, will be included into this salvation. And Jesus declares this with an exclamation point. He says, can you believe it? The Bible says this so many times over and it acts, it says, can you believe the Gentiles? Can you believe the Gentiles are going to be brought in? They're going to be saved. And at some point we listen to that and we're Gentiles, right? So we listen to that and we're like, um, why is that such a big deal? Right? I mean, I, I, it's kind of like when, if you're, if you're in high school and you make like the sports team, right? And you, you, made, you made the team. And, uh, and everybody's excited, right? And your parents uh, are just elated that you made the team. Can you believe it? JD made the team. Can you, be- can you believe it? And at some point you're going, well, gosh, is it, is, it, is it that surprising that I made the team? I mean, I'm feeling kind of bad here by how excited you are. Uh, because your excitement, I kind of thought it would be expected that I would make the team, but you seem to be really excited. The Bible's really excited about us as Gentiles being brought into the kingdom. And we're like, what's the big deal? Aren't aren't we kind of great? And the Bible's like, no, no, you're Gentiles you were born dead, you were born in sin, and you were born amongst a people that does not know God. Now you might be raised in a Christian family, guess what that makes you? An extreme minority, do you know that? It's an extreme minority for you to be raised in a Christian home. And the Bible is extremely excited about the the fact that God's grace reached to you and I. If you're a Gentile, if you're not Jewish, that he reached to you and I who were the lowest of the low when it came to sinners. We weren't like Israel raised in the Old Testament word of God an entire people that was supposed to know the word. They were supposed to know their Messiah. They were supposed to live differently than everybody else around him. Nope, that wasn't us. We're Gentiles. We're those who were raised in sin. And God reached down and he saved us and he brought us to himself. And as I said before, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the Bible just marvels that we, Yes, that you and I would be brought in to his kingdom. Jesus gave his own life for you while you were a sinner. And he did so to bring you into the Trinitarian love of God that he has shared with his father from before the world began. Let me ask you a question. Last thing I'll ask, is this love compelling to you? Is the love, is the Trinitarian love of God something you say, yes, I want that? I want that if it is, if it's desirable to you, if it's compelling to you, if it's more compelling and desirable than anything on this earth, guess what? That is a work of God's grace that you believe that. And if you don't believe that, I hope that my words would contribute, that as I open God's word and I bring God's word to you, that my words would contribute to, um, could, would contribute to your heart being changed. And you would know and love and desire that love of, the, of God for God, the father for the son and God, the son for the father. And that you would recognize that you're, you're being drawn into that through faith in Christ. So I hope you would believe, I hope you would consider the claims of Christianity and put your trust, your full trust into Jesus Christ. And for those of you that have, let's rejoice despite what the world is throwing at us right now let's rejoice that eternal life is ours because Jesus laid down his life that we would have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask now that you would fill us with your spirit. We've asked it in the beginning that as we studied and as we thought together that you that your spirit would fill us. Now I pray your spirit would fill us and help us to, to, Bring to fruition the things that we saw here, that let this be a part of our everyday life, not just a momentary blip where we open our Bibles and we walk away and we forget, but God, I pray that you would actually draw us to remember these things. And even in the darkest of moments to know that if we are in you, eternal life is ours and sustain us through this life, Lord, help us to, to to not just endure this life, but to thrive in this world. Knowing that we are yours and that we have an eternity and we have a hope that will never, ever, ever go away. As Peter says, it's imperishable. So God, I may we, armed with this imperishable hope, may we go out to the world with a smile on our face and with joy in our hearts, proclaiming the gospel of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.